Well, good morning again. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is where we will be, and Lord willing, we will finish 1 Corinthians today. And so, uh, looking at the course, I like to do Old Testament, New Testament, and switch genres in this, the text that I'm preaching. And so, looking at you, I realized you were ruthless. That was my best Vince impression. So we will start the book of Ruth next week. Uh, hopefully get that out. I have preached 41 sermons in 1 Corinthians. We started, is that all? Yeah, yeah. 43 hours worth of sermons, 41 actual sermons, no. Started nearly a year ago. Uh, we began walking through 1 Corinthians late in May last year. And so a lot of that is important, especially when we come to the back half of Corinthians, because if you think about these letters, Paul didn't spend that much time writing this letter. Paul sat down and wrote it. Um, it's a letter. It's a, a note that he said, we spend a lot of time working through each verse and working through uh, each section of the scripture, trying to be faithful and understanding what Paul said. But it's important for us, especially at the end of 1 Corinthians, to look back and see that it's all connected. It's all one letter that Paul wrote, that it builds upon itself, that he's saying something that, that matters. He's not just randomly writing random thoughts that are just coming out on the, from the quill or ink pen or whatever he was using that this is formed together. And so largely this letter in 1 Corinthians is dealing with a church that was an honorary church. It was a church that fought. But they were not unified in a lot of things. And they fight about all sorts of things. There were divisions. There were disunity that on the surface level looked like they were divisions just with people. I like this person while you like that person. Well, you should have done this with the Lord's Supper instead of that. That you should have this church guy removed. It feels like it's just between people. But what Paul's going to show us here and what you and I both need to recognize is that our divisions that we have are actually all, almost always theological issues that we're dealing with. That if when life feels chaotic or uh, when it's divisive or when uh, whatever we have with the church is going on, if we feel like there's issues there, most of the time those issues we deal with are not with one another, but rather a misunderstanding of some theology that's taking place, a misunderstanding of God. That's what Paul is going to do as we look through verse 16, is he's going to drive us back to the gospel purpose that he has for this church. And so I titled this sermon, The Gospel Center Church Cultivates Christian Growth. And I found this, this cross diagram um, a while back, and I wanted to show it for this sermon. Will you turn the... <laughs> I mean, uh, with that kind of work, he's about to be promoted. Uh, no, you can see the timeline here. One of the things I've been wrestling with thinking through, uh, honestly, youth camp and, and what we're going to teach with the youth at youth camp and with the church growing and what Paul somewhat applies here is this idea of how we grow in Christ. And so what you see is if you have good vision, you can see the top line that's going up says uh, it's our understanding of God and his holiness. God is, is, is God. And, and the bottom line is our 
understanding of ourselves, which means we become less self-centered, less caring about ourselves. And the further we progress in faith, the more we think of God, the less we think of ourselves. And you can see how the cross continues to be magnified in our lives as we get that way. This is why the Apostle Paul, Paul himself, can say he's the chief sinner, but he's continuing to grow in Christ. This is why if we continue reading the scriptures and continue growing in the Lord, we feel more Christian, right? We're, we're more like Jesus towards the end of our life than at the beginning because we continue to grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord and we continue to recognize that who we are is, is sinners and that that sin impacts us in a lot of different ways. This is why for our church, I've been pushing the idea of the trellis and the vine. That if we're going to be a faithful church, a faithful church to the scriptures, we have to focus on the organic gospel growth that takes place. Not just trying to grow the structures of our church, but to do things that are going to help the gospel grow. So let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to read all of it, and then we'll, we'll break it down in, in four sections. Now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you uh, recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. And I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia. And perhaps I'll remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want you to see, uh, I don't want to see you just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. If Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace so that he can come to me because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now about your brother Apollos. I urged him to come to you with the brothers, but he was not willing to come until uh, come now. However, he will come when he has an opportunity. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, you know the household of Stephanias. There are first fruits. Uh, they are the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and everyone who works and labors with me. I am delighted to have Stephanias for uh, Fortunatius and Achaeus. If you just say them quickly, it sounds like you're right. Present. Because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all, in, uh, with all of you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that this is the passage of Scripture that we come to. God, that we know your word tells us that all Scripture is profitable. 
which means that this passage of scripture is just as important to our faith as others. That this is just as much your word as other texts. So help us, God, as we look at the end of a letter, which can just sometimes feel like words thrown together to finish it. That it's not just that. Certainly the letter is is being finished by Paul. But God, you have a purpose in that. That these words are not accidental, that they're for us. Help us to grow in you this morning. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the gospel-centered church cultivates Christian growth. And the first way that the the gospel-centered church does this is it cultivates generous giving within its people. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, uh, each of you should set aside, set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. So a gospel-centered church cultivates generous giving. Paul is closing this letter here. He has not really mentioned giving up to this point. And it seems kind of odd that he just throws this in here, right? If you look at it at 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor is not in vain. Now about the collection. That's what it reads, right? He just throws it. It feels like he just throws this idea in here, but it's not. There is this tendency in our lives to sometimes think that we labor in vain. That what we're doing doesn't really matter. And what Paul is saying is, know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And one of the labors he mentions to this church immediately is this collection. And so what they were doing was the church in Jerusalem was struggling. And so when Paul goes out, we see this with the Galatian churches, we see this in Macedonia, we see this with Achaia, where Paul is asking these people, these churches, to set aside some funds so that he can send it to the Jerusalem church. It's Paul recognizing that there are individual local churches, but if we all believe in Jesus, then we are sister churches with one another. It's interesting, right? He, he gives them this, this description of how to do this. He doesn't just say take up a collection. He says, here's how you should take up this collection. Here's how you should raise these funds for this church. On the first day of the week, so Sunday, this is typically when the early church gathered. We gather on Sunday mornings to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Saturday would be the last day of the week. The Sabbath, Sunday is the Lord's Day. Each of you is to set aside something. So first day of the week, when you gather, set something aside and save in keeping with how he's prospering. Meaning, some of you are making more funds than others, and so set aside something. There's not a straight, you know, every single person set aside however much money. It's depending on how much you're making, how you're prospering. Set something aside on the first day of the week so that when Paul comes, you're not having to do a love offering. 
So that when Paul comes, he says, there's no need for me to go say, hey, this church is really struggling. We really need to send funds. Paul is recognizing ahead of time, I want to go to Corinth. I'm going to come visit you guys. Set these funds aside because this church in Jerusalem is struggling and needs help. And then Paul says, when I arrive, I'll send the letters. I'll send the stuff. He's very concerned with who's going to carry this funds. how easy it would be to embezzle those funds. He's very concerned with the character of the people who are going to carry these. He's not concerned if the Corinthians are going to raise the funds or not. He's very concerned with who's going to carry them over. So he says, find these people that you recommend, and if I need to go with them, I will travel with them also. See, there are are times in our church's life and this text is hard because I don't think what Paul is doing here is he's talking about our weekly giving that we are supposed to set aside for the Lord or our monthly giving, the giving that we give to the church, our tithes as we would call it. This seems to be a separate set-aside thing for this church that Paul is, is talking about. But there's certainly things we can learn from this. The word tithe means 10%. That's where we get the idea that you give 10% of your income to the church. If you look at the Old Testament, there's, there's guys who've done the studies. It looked more like 25% when you broke down all of the animals that you would sacrifice and stuff. But you get to the New Testament, and there is no set number on what a church or what a person is supposed to give. Instead, what you see is that the gospel creates generous people. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. God loves a cheerful giver. Give generously. The idea then is not for me to sit and say, so you need to give X percentage of your income to the church or you're an unfaithful Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. And churches should not say that. What Paul is saying is that each person, each family needs to sit down and decide how much we're going to give to the church and why. We've talked about this this morning in the the membership class. My heart as the pastor when it comes to giving is to pastor you. That's what God has called me to do, to oversee, to shepherd. And one of the ways that I can shepherd is encourage you to be faithful with what God has given you. And that faithfulness is going to look different from family to family and from person to person. So sometimes 10% is a good amount for you to think through and maybe a good goal to start with. Other times 10% may be too much. Other times 10% may be not enough. This is for you to sit down and decide what you looking generous and being faithful with what the Lord has given you means. But let's not neglect that God has given you more than just money. You are more than just your bank account. God has given you time. Now, everybody has the same amount of time. Bill Gates has no more time than we do. He just has to spend his not in Ira, so what a loser he must be. But everybody has the same amount of time. That we are called to be faithful with our time just as we are called to be faithful with our funds. We're given talent. Can you believe that? Even us. Talent. That God has uniquely, Paul talks about this in Corinthians, he's given you gifts. Gifts that are meant to be used in his church for building up the body. That you are going to be called to steward those, to be faithful with those gifts too. Time, talent, treasure, the, the, the old Baptist pastors would always say. That God has given you to be equipped with. So use them carefully. In my experience, 
Time is the easiest one to lose track of. It is so easy and so convenient sometimes to just forget about something for a little bit and to waste our time away. Society has never been equipped like ours is right now to entertain you and me to death. The cost of entertainment is as cheap as it ever has been before, and I'm afraid that we waste so much time entertaining ourselves rather than doing what the Lord would call us to do in stewarding our time well. A gospel-centered church cultivates generous giving. Verse 5. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want you to see I don't want to see you now just in passing since I hope to spend time with you if the Lord allows. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. Now, if Timothy comes, he has nothing to fear while with you, uh, because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he can come to me, because I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, about your brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to come to you uh, with the brothers, but he was not at all willing to come now. However, when he, uh, he will come when he has an opportunity. So the gospel-centered church cultivates genuine love. These are the passages I think sometimes we skip in our Bible reading plans. Maybe we don't skip them, but we just kind of like mentally, we'll read them, but we don't focus on what Paul's actually saying, right? It's just a list of a bunch of names, and it's a list of a bunch of different places that may or may not mean something to us or not to us, but there doesn't seem to be like any pertinent commands to us, right? Okay, if somebody named Timothy shows up to our church, we're going to take care of him, and then we'll send him on his way peacefully. Is that how we apply this text? But if we step back and just look at what Paul's heart is for these people, we can see something that's true. This letter has largely been a letter Paul correcting this church on things they've done wrong. And Paul has not really, like, tempered down how he's corrected them. He said some things that would be hard. If, you, if we were in a member meeting and Paul wrote this letter to us, we would probably want to disassociate from Paul. Or we would probably kind of duck our head in shame for some of the things that Paul called us out on. Yet what we see Paul doing here is he's saying, I want to come visit you, and I want it to be more than just walking by, shaking hands, and moving on. I want to spend some time with you. He says, I'm in Macedonia because I'm traveling through Macedonia, and I might stay for the winter, but I, I might go on. I, I don't know, but I, when I come to visit you, I want to set it up so that I can spend some quality time together. You don't do that with people you don't love. You don't do that with people you don't care about. If Paul just cared about bringing a hardback Bible in and beating these people in place so that they quit acting dumb, it wouldn't be an extended stay. Instead, Paul says, I want to set it up so that I can spend time with you as the Lord allows. I, I, he just like is giving his, his plans out, right? I'm in Ephesus right now. I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. 
And so there's this range of time there. But he says, I'm staying here because the Lord has opened this door for ministry. And so I feel like I can't leave. God hasn't told me it's time to go. I'm going to continue doing this ministry here. And I love that Paul says his ministry just isn't a bunch of people coming to the Lord in droves, although maybe that was happening. But Paul makes sure we know that in this ministry that he says is an open door, he was still being opposed by a lot of people. That sometimes in our pragmatic mindsets, we think, well, if I have nobody pushing against me, then that's an open door. But if somebody's pushing against me, maybe God's shutting that door. That's not what Paul thinks of it here. A wide door for effective ministry for me has opened, yet many oppose me. And then Paul talks about some of his disciples that he loves. Timothy. He wrote two letters to Timothy in the Bible, first and second. Timothy was the pastor of Ephesus for a while, so you could say Ephesians was to Timothy too. There's this sweet relationship when you read them between Paul and Timothy, of Paul discipling this young man, and you can see it here in Paul's protection of Timothy too. I don't know what was going on in Timothy's life. I know in, in uh, 1 Timothy 4.12 it says, Do not let others look down upon you because you are young, but set an example for them and improve for training for correction in righteousness. That's Paul writing to, to Timothy. And then we see in verse 11 here, Paul again is telling the church, Hey, don't look down on Timothy. Like There's something there with Timothy where I guess he felt like people were looking down on him. And Paul is telling him, Don't let them look down on you. And then he's telling other people, Quit looking down on him. That he's protecting this young man that he loves that he cares for, and that he sends to Corinth, a church that he loves, and a church that he cares for. We seem to do the same thing with Apollos. He calls Apollos a brother. Yet at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, do you remember one of the guys that people said they liked preaching better than Paul? It was Apollos. How easy would it have been for Paul to say, listen, Apollos doesn't want to come to you because he doesn't really like you, but I like you, so maybe you should like my teaching over Apollos's. That's not what Paul does. He says Apollos is a faithful preacher of God's word. He said, I urged him to come and visit you. I I told him, you need to go talk to this congregation. They're not listening to me. They're doing boneheaded things. Go talk to them. They like you better than me. Maybe you can help sort them out. And Apollos said, no. (laughs) At least not right now. And we're not told the circumstance or the situation, but he says maybe he'll come when he has an opportunity to come, but right now he cannot come. Do you see what Paul is doing for this little church in Corinth? He's not berating them, telling them, get your act together or I'm never writing to you again. He doesn't say, you're on the verge of losing my care and losing my affection. No, what he says is, I love this little church that you're at. that for reasons I don't understand, we can read through Corinth and say there's a lot of reasons to not like First Baptist Church of Corinth. Yet Paul says the gospel culture cultivates a genuine love for us. A love for one another. Look at verse 13. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Brothers and sisters, know... Uh, you know that the house of Stephanus, uh, that there are the first fruits of Achaia, and you have devoted yourselves to serving the saints. And I urge you also to submit to such people and to everyone who labors, uh, who works and labors with them. I am delighted to have Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus present. Because of these men 
uh, because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. So we've seen that the gospel Center church cultivates a, uh, um, a generous giving. It cultivates genuine love, and a gospel Center church cultivates a consistent love. One of the false ideas our culture teaches you and I, and this is the fault of Disney movies and probably others beyond, is that how we think about love is love is something that we can fall into and love is something that we can fall out of. And there's certainly an emotional aspect to love with our feelings that that is true. We can fall in love and we can fall out of love. But if all our love is based on emotional things, then your whole life is going to be in love with some things and out of love with other things. There will be no consistency. But what we see, especially in the Old Testament, when talking about God's love, the Old Testament writers often focused on the steadfastness of it. That their lives would be up and their lives would be down. And they would be up sometimes because of good things they did. And they would be up sometimes because God was gracious to them in the midst of their dumb things they were doing. And sometimes their lives would be down. And sometimes they were down because they did dumb things and it was the just and righteous thing that should happen to them. All Jonah in a whale. Or in a fish. And sometimes they were down because that's just what the Lord had sent them through to do those things. And what they continually reflect on in the Old Testament is the steadfast love of God, the unchanging love of God. It's not that it's not emotional. It's just not affected like our, we think of love sometimes. And we see that with Paul here. Where he gives us kind of these staccato commands. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. 1 Corinthians is a letter about a lot of things, but it's also the letter where we get the love passage, isn't it? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It is not boastful. Paul's saying you can be strong, you can be courageous, and you can be loving, that there is this steadfastness that can carry with it. And he tells them about this man named Stephanias. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians. If you look back in 1 Corinthians, at the very beginning, Paul talks about this list of people where he's like, I'm really glad I didn't baptize some of you. Do you remember that? He's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize you because you would argue over your salvation would be better than somebody else's based on who baptized you as opposed to why you were baptized. And one of the people Paul remembers baptizing in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanias. That Paul is recognizing this man. He calls him the first fruits of Achaia, which means that there is a chance, a likely chance, that this family, Stephanias, was the first believer in Corinth. He's the first fruits. And he says that this guy has served you, his saints. That he's cared for you. That if we're talking about a young church and he's the first fruits of the believer, that's likely that some of these people are Christians because this man went and shared the gospel with them. He's talked about almost as a pastor here, as a father. And Paul says, submit to such people and to everyone who labors with them. And then he, he talks about Stephanias and then he talks about the other guys whose names are hard and I've already read them twice and I don't feel like doing it again. And we see that Stephanus is, is with Paul. He's not with Corinth right now. Why? 
Why is he not with Corinth? Why is he with Paul? Well, he might have been the one who took the letter. Remember, they're likely this letter that Paul wrote to Corinth is Paul replying to a letter that they had written to him. Likely, Stephanus is the one who took it to Paul. And Paul says, because of these men that you have cared for, they have made up for your absence. They've refreshed my spirit. That there is this not just love. We love Paul when he comes and when he preaches and when he uh, thinks kindly of us. And we don't really like Paul when he's saying the hard things over here. We just kind of, you know, compartmentalize Paul. They say we have this consistent and this faithful love with one another. That it's steadfast, unwavering, firm, bold. It's a consistent love. That a gospel-centered church cultivates this within one another. Look at verse 19. For the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. O Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. So Gospel Center Church cultivates generous giving cultivates a genuine love it cultivates a consistent love and it cultivates a longing for Jesus we see these churches of Asia mentioned and we see Aquila and Priscilla who sometimes it said Priscilla and Aquila in the text and they're mentioned multiple times in the scripture they're a fascinating couple to look at Apollos would, would preached and he didn't do very well and so Priscilla and Aquila pull young Apollos aside straighten out his preaching and then send him back out and we see that they have a church that meets in their home and that Paul's like hey they love you too and then he says all the brothers and sisters send you greetings and he tells them to greet each other with a holy kiss so let's talk about this we've we been doing handshakes wrong is this like the European thing where we're supposed to kiss each other's cheeks if that's the case that's weird and I may we got a kid with strip right now. You don't want to do that. It's a cultural thing. It's them saying, this is more than just, you know, hey, how are you doing? I'm walking by. This is something that you know these people you're with, that you care for these people, that you love these people. Sometimes in Paul's letters, you'll see at the very end that, that Paul probably was speaking the letter and somebody else was writing it down. And you see that with, with several letters, but not with this one. Paul says, I wrote this one with my own hand. And then he says this phrase that seems odd. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. O Lord, come. This is to a church. This is not supposed to be unbelievers that are reading this. This is written to a church. Right There might have been unbelievers present when they were gathering, reading this, but the church that was together would have been Christians, would have been believers. And so what Paul is saying is if you're a Christian, if you're a part of this church at Corinth, and some of the reasons you have this, these divides that are taking place is these divisions are because you don't love Jesus, a curse be on you, because that means you're not a Christian. And I love how he ends it. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. 
there's this longing for Christ. A longing for Christ's presence of love to be with the Corinth congregation. A longing for Jesus to come back. A longing for people to know him. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. You see how Paul ends this letter is so interesting. He's been telling us this idea of a gospel-centered church is going to cultivate Christian growth. Church is not meant to be just some intellectual process thing that you go to. I'm not giving you lectures that should you take notes on and hopefully take a test at the end of the semester and that you can pass and grow in this head knowledge of the Lord. That's not what a church is supposed to be. Now, that should take place. We should be educating ourselves in the gospel, but a church is far more than that. It's not about us just learning about God and growing about God for our own individual gain. What Paul is saying is this takes place with a fellowship of believers people who've covenanted together that we look at our own life and we look at the lives of others and we say a gospel centered church is not some organization it's not some building the church is its people that have gathered together that we are supposed to be cultivating Christian growth in ourselves and in our brothers and sisters in Christ too sometimes that means encouragement when somebody is down and they're struggling and they're hurting and they're wounded, that we as the church are cultivating growth by encouraging them, walking alongside of them, making sure that they're okay. Sometimes this means confrontation with others, not in a way of like, I'm right and you're wrong and you need to change, or not with fistfights, certainly, right? We're saving the fistfighting to the Methodists, not to us. Just kidding, the Methodists would never do that. It'd be probably the Church of Christ or something. (laughs) But there are times in our lives, brothers and sisters, where you and I are not perfect on this side of heaven. Where we have sin in our life that we may be blind to, that we do not recognize and that we do not see. And if the gospel-centered church cultivates Christian growth, then one of our jobs is to lovingly correct brothers and sisters who are like wailing, going off, sinning. Say, I see this in your life. And, and, And this only can take place if you have a genuine relationship with them. If you don't have a genuine relationship with somebody and somebody comes up to you, you don't really know them, and they say, hey, you're a sinner and here's what you're doing, you're not going to respond well. But if you know somebody loves you, if you know somebody cares for you, if you know somebody prays for you, if you know somebody genuinely wants what's best for you and they kindly walk up to you and kindly confront you in some sin that you probably have, the response is very different. That a gospel-centered church cultivates this kind of Christian growth. That we have fellowship with one another beyond just the hour on Sunday morning that we're praying for one another, that we're looking after one another, that you're still members of the church when we see each other in the basketball stands or in the football stands, that what you yell at referees reflects (laughs) your Christianity. That one was to me. That's what this means for Christians. 
is if you're, especially if you're a member of our church, that your job is to cultivate growth. And the way that Paul lays out the growth here is we grow in generous giving, we grow in genuine love, we grow in consistent love, and we grow in a longing for Jesus. So the question you have to ask is what are the things in your life that are encouraging those things and what are the things in your life that are discouraging them? What are the things that you need to cultivate to continue to do more and more and what are the things that you need to repent of and turn away from? Or as the diagram at the beginning showed, what are the things that's going to make the cross bigger in your life? For the unbelievers, this is hard. Because again, this is written to a church. To an unbeliever, it does not make sense why you would give anything to anybody else. I know there's a social aspect to this now where we recognize it feels good to be charitable. And so you see nonprofits have taken off since uh, probably 20, 30 years ago. And that giving to them has taken off and largely because there's tax advantages to it, which is really a selfish motivator to give, which is sinful. So this doesn't make sense. And a genuine love can't really make sense. And a consistent love cannot make sense. Cancel culture has run supreme within our culture. That's the, that's the idea of a consistent love, no matter what you do, does not make sense to the world outside. And a longing for Jesus to come doesn't make sense. But to the unbeliever, if you're here hearing this message, what you have to know is this is what you need is that what the cross of Jesus Christ does, what the gospel of Jesus does, is it changes you fundamentally from the inside outside, and all of the things that don't make sense make sense with Christ. That you can be selfless. That you can love with, un- like in the best sense, unconditionally. We've, we've defined it with my family. I'll define it again. Our, our, when we talk about love in the Moore household, we say love is wanting what's best for somebody else, even if that means it's at your expense. And that we can long for Jesus. Because at the end of the day, we have no hope outside of him. You know the difference in faith and hope? Faith is the trust in God right now. We cling to it. Hope is the trust in God that comes in the end. It's something we anticipate. It's not yet fully here. But we believe that we will be bodily resurrected like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we believe that that carries with us an emphasis. That we are more than just material beings. That we are more than people who just die and go back to the dust and don't exist. We are souls that God has given us. And that how we live now, the decisions we make now, affect our eternity. I pray for the Christians is that we would grow in the gospel. And that we would grow others in the gospel. My prayer for the unbeliever is that you would see this. And you would see the good news of Jesus Christ. That he lived the life you should have lived. That he died the death that you deserved. That the worst of you is taken by Christ that you would repent of your sin and that you would follow after him in faith. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for today. God, I thank you that when you save us, you don't just take us away, but you leave us where we're at to be discipled. God, the primary means in your word of discipleship is your church. So I pray, Father, that you'd help us to cultivate Christian growth with one another. That we would love one another, we would care for one another, we would pray for one another, we would read your Bible, read your scriptures with one another. That our relationships would be more than just I and by. That you'd help us to know one another, not for our own selfish gains, but God, so that we can help cultivate, help disciple one another. God, I pray for the unbelievers who are here. That your gospel, your good news, the belonging to you would be appealing. And that you'd help those people to repent of their sin and turn to you in faith this morning. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the finished work of the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.